Hey, this is Warren Haynes of Government Mule, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, this is Samantha Fish, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hi, this is Reese Wine, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks from Pittsburgh. episode 494 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing you the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk on the net. Episode 494, we're going to go in the very bluesy direction. We have joining us uh, for the first time, Joanne Shaw Taylor, who will be doing a show at the Byam Theater on the 13th of November, also dropping an incredible new album on October 28th called Nobody's Full, so we will talk with her in just a few moments and also joining us on the line to discuss the official release of the Allman Brothers Band live January 17, 1971 from our Syria Mosque here in Pittsburgh. We have joining us uh, Bert Holman and John Linsky, uh, band historian and, and Bert is the band's manager. We're going to talk about how this recording came to be, where it came from, why is it coming out now. Could you get it in other forms before? All kinds of great stuff having to do with the Allman Brothers Band and the Syria Mosque. So, as I mentioned, we're going to talk to Joanne Shaw Taylor. She's got a great new album. She's a, a guitarist who has been around for quite a long time. Um, kind of officially discovered by Dave Stewart of The Eurythmics, uh, who you don't necessarily think of when you think of blues music. Uh, Joanne is an extremely talented guitar player without question, and I think equally impressive, if not even slightly more so, as a singer. Uh, Her live performance has been on uh, WQED and other PBS stations across the country, Uh, so this tour is going to be, uh, I think, a big one for her. The Byam Theater, a great place to see a show. So as I mentioned, she'll be there Sunday night, November 13th, so... Without further ado, we're going to play you a little of Joanne Shaw Taylor's album. We'll get right into that You'll be okay 
darkest clouds that never stay Before you know it, it's all come and gone One day it fades away One day it fades away My pleasure to welcome to Iron City Rocks. We have on the line Joanne Shaw-Taylor. How are you doing, Joanne? I'm good. How are you? Doing very well. You're going to be coming in in literally exactly a month from the day you and I are speaking here. On uh, It'll be the 13th of November. You're going to be doing your first show in Pittsburgh at the Byam Theater in in the, the lovely Byam Theater, uh, which I thought was kind of a neat neat venue to do you know your first show in the city. But I know you've been at this for a long time and built up quite a reputation. Um, and you've got specials on PBS, which has been airing several times in this market, which is a great uh, tool that I think uh, I think J&R Adventures probably uh, paved that way for a lot of uh, musicians to consider using PBS. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, how you made the move? I, I realize this isn't your first album with the Keeping the Blues Alive or, or your affiliation with Joe, but can you kind of talk about you know what kind of turned that corner in your career when you started to work with Jim and, or I'm sorry, Roy and Joe? Yeah, I mean, um, I've known them both for about 14 years. Um, I've been very close friends to them, but um, it was really COVID because <clears throat> I was off the road, obviously due to that, um, as was Joe for the first time, and, you know, it's the first time either of us had had, you know, serious time off. Um, so, you know, we ended up talking a lot, and, um, you know, I said to him, look, I'm, I'm struggling to write, you know, so I think I'm going to do a blues covers album. You know, mm-hmm. I always wanted to do one, and you know, now seems like the right time. And um, he started helping me with it, started sending me song suggestions, and I sent him what I had. And eventually, it was, you know, became clear that he was already producing it. So I asked him if he fancied the gig, and unfortunately, he said yes. Um, and then when we told Roy, he basically said, "Well, look, you know, if if you're doing this with Joe, why don't I put it out?" And um, you know, I've been working with Sony for an album and an EP. Um, I was very happy there, but you know it felt like the right move to make I'm very sure. close to Joe and Roy um, you know basically I would be working with my best friends so yeah. there was no better case than go in my head um, so we went for it and that was the first album we did then we did the live album and now we've got another uh, album coming out on October 28th yeah and you certainly can't argue with you know I, I remember and I was so grateful that, that Roy kind of explained how they approached you know kind of flipping the touring industry especially on its ear with the model they did uh, and for anybody out there if you, and I apologize I do not remember which of the infinite number of Joe Bonamassa DVDs I have that that was in the um, mm-hmm. in the you know in the bonus features there was a great interview with Roy about that but um, it seems to be you know it, you can't argue with the results I mean in, in a in a genre yeah. of music where it's hard to produce, you know, there are some amazing musicians out there that never really got their due. Um, his model seems to work quite well, so I, I, I compliment you on, on making that decision because I think it obviously, um, you know, is going to help your career uh, in spades. Um, the new album, Nobody's Fool. These songs, when I when I listen to those, you know, I, I I think people when they hear your name think guitar player. You know, and I think that happens with a lot of blues, blues mm. musicians who play guitar. When I listen to this album, though, I think of a singer almost first, you know, and songwriter. 
is that something that, that you as a musician do you do you care how people kind of perceive it as long as they enjoy it or or do you like to be thought of more as a guitarist than a singer or singer versus guitarist um i mean i don't really mind i mean i think people are gonna um always have a viewpoint of you and i think mm-hmm. that's always going to differ amongst individuals um I mean, I personally see myself as a songwriter mm-hmm. who sings their own and, and mm-hmm. enjoys playing guitar as well. Um, but I know there are some people out there that see me largely as a guitar player and some that see me predominantly as a singer, um, mm-hmm. which is nice. You know, it's all nice to think that I've got three talents. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I can't complain about that. Um, but yeah, I do personally see myself as a songwriter first and foremost. The songs on this album, you know, some of them are... are, are pretty personal uh in nature were these songs like when, when you write lyrics specifically i know guitar players tend mm. to you know they have a kind of a catalog of riffs that they you know they kind of keep it seems like every guitarist has that little thing on their phone with riffs that they just haven't quite used yet <laughs> but when it comes to lyrics do you tend to write you know the songs we're hearing now are these all relatively recent in you know creations yeah, I mean, I don't write very often, to be honest, mm-hmm. um, which is really because of the boring schedule. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm on the road for sort of eight, nine months of the year. Um, so I wrote all these in about the course of two weeks. I mean, I had a few ideas. Um, so I'd had like the guitar chords to fade away for some time, um, but hadn't written any lyrics. Um, and I think uh, the music that ended up becoming the leaving kind I'd had for a couple of years actually and just never done anything with um, so that, you know I wasn't starting completely from fresh but no I kind of sat down and, and uh, wrote it over about two or three weeks um, so yeah it was a pretty short turnaround Was Fade Away in particular something that you had you know kind of the, the inspiration for, for for a while or, or was that something a little fresher in your life um, I'd had the music, but then in terms of where I went with it, mm-hmm. um, I knew I didn't want it to just be a love ballad. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I came to writing this album, I was thinking a lot about my mom who passed away in 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's coming up on the 10 year anniversary. So I think that's why it's sort of been on my mind a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, grief kind of changes. It's always going to be there. Uh, and I think when I was writing the album, the grief particularly centered around the fact that it's been so long since I've talked to her. Yeah. Um, and also there's different questions I would ask now because I was 28 when she died and I'm yeah. 37 now and I, you know, there were things I didn't think to ask. Um, so I just kind of wrote it from that point of view that if I did have a conversation with her, what would the motherly advice be? Um, and it was actually very, you know, um, therapeutic i suppose yeah um but yeah uh, that was a sort of different subject matter for me i mean i've never written about it before and and you know i don't plan on making it a, a regular thing but it was nice to kind of sit and address that i suppose yeah i think you know, there's probably so many people that can identify with that theme of that song you know it, to, to hear you explain yeah, that's, it that's, that's what's been really nice is i've seen all the comments on um facebook and it's it's been really surprising for the first time to see uh, people really relating to it and um, you know we all go through the same things you know most of us lose parents Mm -hmm. um, and regardless of the age you know 
how lucky we are to, to have parents that we miss, you know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's, it's been nice to see all the feedback and, and people saying they've really enjoyed it, so that's lovely. Do you like to, to when, when it, I mean, as a, as a rule, when you write, do, is it uncomfortable to do things so personal? Even though, that you know, it's, it's a universal theme, but it's still very personal to you. Is that mm. something that, that's difficult? No, not really. I think... Um, I think you have to have honesty in songs, you know, and as an artist, that's why you're doing it. You know, I think you've got to write first and foremost for yourself and you've got to play guitar for yourself and you've got to sing for yourself because if you're not feeling that emotion and getting something out of it, I don't think you can make someone else get a feeling from it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I could sit there and go, okay, what songs are going to sell the most? You know, I need four up tempo, I need... Yeah. two ball- big ballads I need this. Um, but it's it's play by numbers and that's you know I, I didn't get into this to fake it I've always joked that you know if I was going to do something soulless I'd have done something that actually earned me good money and not <laughs> been a musician uh, yeah you know I'd have been a, a lawyer or something or yeah, venture really. finance or something so yeah <laughs> I think I think you've got to kind of dig deep but I don't think you know I don't do it for other people I do it for me and then I hope other people get something out of it sure Sure. As a guitar player, I, I noticed in in a as a fan um, was really appreciative to see the PBS special because as you know we talked about off off interview this will be your first trip into the Pittsburgh market so you know it wasn't a lot of opportunity to hear you other than than recordings but to watch you play the mm. guitar you you attack the guitar almost uh, you know there I seen many 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 great guitar players but you do something when you go into a solo that almost reminds me so much of watching stevie ray vaughn um the way you kind of launch into the guitar during the solos um as a player were there particular people that that you kind of gravitated to you grew up you know you're enough younger than me that i know you kind of grew up in an era where there was not a tremendous amount of blues rock music probably on the radio so, you know, what yeah. kind of shaped you as a, as a guitarist specifically? Um, well, you've mentioned it, Stevie Ray for me. Stevie was the the one I fell in love with. Um, my dad was a guitar player, um, born in the 50s. So, mm. you know, he got to see that kind of British invasion. And, sure. you know, I'm sure you can imagine what the collection looks like. Um, a lot of Hendrix, a lot of blues, a lot of stones. Um and yeah, he played me a Steve Ray Vaughan DVD, and I'd, I'd actually been playing classical guitar. And I think you hit the nail on the head was that I knew I loved playing guitar, but I didn't particularly like classical, and it was very disciplined. Mm-hmm. And then I saw Stevie sort of launched into everything, yeah. like full pelt. Uh, and not to say he didn't have softer moments and dynamics, because he did, but um, was a very you know strong guitar player. But also, it was completely himself. I mean, he wore his influences on his sleeve. You could hear Hendrix, you could hear Buddy Guy, um, but he wrapped it up in his own package. Um, and I love the fact that blues guitar was essentially about your personality coming mm-hmm. through, you know. Uh, so yeah, Stevie was the first one, and then I just went into researching all his influences. Um, Albert Collins was the second big influence. Again, crazy guitar technique. No one else plays like that. I don't know why you would, <laughs> to be honest, but it worked for yeah. Um, but again, it just shows you can play the guitar however you want, really, as long as it you know sounds good, and that's all that matters. Yeah, I think there's a there's a generation, well, more than than one generation, that really owes 
Stevie Ray Vaughan a debt of gratitude, almost just for the fact of what you just said about discovering his influences. Because, you know, growing up, myself in the 80s, you know, kind of when Stevie Ray Vaughan was doing his thing, I didn't get to hear Albert King on the radio. But boy, you know, the moment Stevie said, you know, listen to the Alberts, I'm going to get an Albert King, mm. Albert Collins, um, you know, and fell in love with, with that stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's yeah. what's I mean, he was, cool uh, with the blues. You know, people do wear their influences yeah. on their sleeves. I mean, he, he was just this perfect gateway artist to blues. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've heard, like, Charlie Patton before when I was a mm. kid. You know, my dad played a lot of Charlie Patton or Big Bill Brunsey, but... You know, as a 10-year-old kid growing up in a village in England and, and my friends were listening to the Spice Girls and, you know, <laughs> this very saturated, clean, poppy... To hear a Charlie Patton album that's full of scratches because it's, you know, 100 years old, it was very difficult to listen to, whereas Stevie was very polished um, mm -hmm. and as great as a guitar player he was, he was a beautiful singer. He had a lovely, smoky, soothing voice. Um, his guitar tone was very palatable, and he had nice pop songs, you know, Love Struck yeah. Baby, Pride and Joy, you know, they were catchy little um, blues pop songs, really, and, you know, and, and a really clean production, so it was easy to kind of get into Stevie and then, you know, go further back, and um, I think that shows, because now you've got artists like me, who sound nothing like Stevie, but mm -hmm. um, were clearly influenced by him, and you've got John Mayer, you've got, you know, Kenny Wayne Shepherd. He's, he's inspired a whole different genre of musicians. Sure. Yeah, last last question because I know we, we want to keep on time. You, Reese plays a little on your new album. Um, was that kind of a pitch yourself moment when you when you got to work with him the first time? Yeah, the first time. I mean, I met him a few times through Joe because he's been in his band for a while now. But um, he played on the Blues album mm -hmm. last year, and he's actually sitting next to me. And I remember being a bit nervous, but you know, I've known him, so I know he's a, a sweetheart of a guy. But there was one solo I did where at the end he kind of like looked over and put, over at me and put his thumbs up like good job sound really good and I was like oh my god yeah. <laughs> you go back to watching the Austin Texas DVD in '89 yeah and you, you know you just have that much flashing to being a 13 year old girl going like oh my god I'm in America playing with Bruce Wine and it's um, yeah it's yeah. kind of it's, you know. That, that's a special moment. Thank um, uh, Joan, I want to thank you so much for your time. Uh, you will be in town on November 13th at Byam Theater. Um, very limited number of tickets if you want to sit up close. Um, so if you're listening to this, get your tickets now. I believe that's a Sunday night. Uh, ought to be a great time, and I'd be glad to see you guys coming into Pittsburgh and hope this is the first of many. Thank you so much. No worries. Thank you so much. All right. All right, Nobody's Fool from Joanne Shaw-Taylor will be out on October 28th, and then in about two weeks beyond that, we'll see her at the Byam Theater on November 13th for an 8 o'clock show. Ought to be an amazing night of blues rock. We're going to turn our attention now, as I mentioned, to another show that was actually in Pittsburgh, but it was in Pittsburgh 51 years ago. That was the Allman Brothers, who actually did two shows in, in 1971 at the... Uh, former Syria Mosque, uh, which for many of us was, was an amazing place to see a show. They did a show in January, which has kind of long been rumored to be one of Dwayne Allman's last shows, and that's actually not accurate at all. The recording uh, is the show done early on the tour in the month of uh, January, and then they came around later in that year, and I think that was his 
don't quote me on this third to last show or something like that with uh, with a band before he passed away but that January 1971 show is going to be given an official CD release sanctioned by the band and as we talk about in the interview we'll see the light of day at some point hopefully very soon in the form of vinyl so without further ado we're going to talk to Bert Holman which is the band's manager uh, and also John Linsky who is a band historian uh, and heavily involved with this Syria Moss recording. So let's get to that interview. Ladies and gentlemen, my pleasure to welcome to Iron City Rocks. We have Bert Holman and John Linsky on the line. How are you doing, guys? Hey, John. We're good, John. Thank Wonderful. you for having us. Pleasure. We wanted to talk to you both being involved with the soon-to-be-released 1971 show from Syria Mosque of the Allman Brothers Band. I should, I guess, correctly say the January 17 show of uh, the Allman Brothers Band, which was, as many of us know, kind of the last... Uh, hurrah of uh, that tour uh, coming through well that p- tour came to Pittsburgh twice if I recall correctly um, this one is I think a lot of people mistakenly thinking this is one of the last Almond Brothers shows with Dwayne even though it was not but what kind of brought the, the you know the January 17 show to be you know kind of officially released and cleaned up at this point Holman here. So what happened with this show, among other shows, it was a particularly well-recorded show and a really good performance. Um, we keep examining all of the uh, archival shows that we find and looking for good quality sounding shows and good, and good performances and good recordings. Um, and finding all three at the same time sometimes can be very challenging. The band was not very good at holding on to their archival recordings. Mm-hmm. Um, we were able to get a uh, a dub of this off of the uh, uh, a good transfer of this recording, and uh, because of the, the quality of the sound and the quality of the performance, we we wanted to you know put it back out there. It, it had been a bootleg that had been trading quite a, quite mm-hmm. frequently in the uh, cassette market back in the days of cassettes, but most people have cassette of cassette of cassettes, so the quality is not really there. Sure. And with today's technology, and a, a guy named Bill Levinson, who's a former uh, Universal Music executive who puts out arch- all these archival packages that you see at Universal, um, he's now working independently, and we work with him very closely, and he helped us do a lot of the sonic restoration on this to try and get it to sound as good as it could possibly sound. Uh, and more importantly, um, allowing the band to you know, control their music rather than just having you know, other third parties putting it out there and not right. paying for the use of the songs to the songwriters who wrote the songs. There are a number of songs in here that are not written by the members of the Alvin Brothers. And with the band benefit from it, and more importantly, if we put it out, we can get it up on Spotify and all the other digital networks where this tape is, this has not been available, sure. except for some you know, YouTube, YouTube uh, bootlegs that are up there. 
So that's sort of yeah. all of what was behind our mind. We've been putting out a series of archival recordings for a number of years now, starting with stuff that nobody heard. Um, and we just kept we kept coming back to this Pittsburgh show sounding great. And as you said, it was occasionally mistakenly identified as the October show. Um, and there's really a, uh, people trying to take advantage of knowing their, the last, what was perceived as the last recorded show by Dwayne Alban, um, and basically trying to sell it in the market for their own gain. The funny thing is, is that recently we had somebody walk in with a cassette and say to us, I have a copy of the band's performance at Painter's Mill in, in uh, Owingsville, Maryland, which was Dwayne's last public performance. Right. Its sonic quality is, is a bit dicey because he recorded on a handheld $50 cassette deck, but it is the last recording. And that was and released, in my correct? Was that an official release, the one that was in 2020? Is yeah, that, it's called okay. Final Note. Okay. Final Note, yeah. And, and that's, really know, one for, uh, that's one really for the fans who really want the final performance. Sure, sure, you take that. How are you? The sonic quality of Pittsburgh. Yeah, the historical value of the final note speaks for itself. But in terms of what Bert is saying, uh, we really wanted to get the best possible quality out there and having bill levinson work on this particular show and to your point earlier john yeah there was a lot of confusion among tape traders back in the 80s the 90s the cassette era people didn't really know a lot uh because there wasn't a lot of information available so yes january of 71 was mistaken for october of 71 as bert was saying and it it went from being the last known recorded show of Dwayne to, you know, the last show of Dwayne. And it, it, people were actually talking about January all the time. And people asked, well, how do you know the difference between October and January? And that's what Bert has allowed us to do our detective work. And it's a matter of looking at the set list, knowing what songs they played when. And, for example, there's a one-way out on the October show, well, in January, they weren't playing One Way Out. Uh, Statesboro Blues, by October, Dwayne and Dickie had swapped when they took solos. So when you know things like that, you can identify, well, this has to be January. And we knew the Taj Mahal opened in January, and yeah. Dwayne refers to Taj uh, before the show kicks off. So that's the kind of detective work we do to get it right. And, you know, to emphasize what Bert was saying, you know, people want the best quality possible and the band should be compensated for their music. Sure. And why have a third generation cassette when you can have a really, really good sounding soundboard quality release? Yeah, absolutely. And, and does, does the fact that, that vinyl has seen such a resurgence play into the you know the kind of wanting to get this out in that format as well you mentioned cassettes which obviously had their time and place and are still a bit of a novelty mm. in the market today and, and youtube but does being able you know because i looked at this and the first thing i one is like uh, i gotta buy the record does that kind of factor into that you know when you're picking these oh absolutely go ahead bert well and i said what happens to us with vinyl now is is that vinyl is sort of like the the, the second, the, I don't know what's called the afterthought, the second play. We've done a lot of limited edition colored vinyl releases um, in support of Record Store Day to help the independent sure. record stores. 
give them a leg up in, in the business here and, and give them something special to get people to come into stores. Um, we have one out right now from A&R Studios that's a pink vinyl version where a portion of the, of the proceeds go to, uh, uh, what's, John, what's it called? Red Door? Is that what it's called? Red, Red, Red Yes, the, yeah, old, which the is Gilder a, Radner Cancer. Okay. Yeah, it was yeah. originally Gilded. They changed. They yeah. they think they start figuring out that no one, uh, people aren't. Gilda's not as well known as she was. So they now have like yeah. Red Door Charity, something along those lines. It's called. Um, but we we're one of ten bands that are doing it this year. We did it last year as well, and our record was so successful in terms of the quantity we made and the amount, and the and the sell through. They came back to us and said, "Would you consider doing it again?" And I said, "Yeah, but I don't know what to put out." And then I thought about it for a few minutes and said. Oh, we put out A and R Studios like seven years ago on colored vinyl. Let's put it out on pink vinyl this time. And you know, for us, it's really more a question of trying to help a really va- valid nonprofit and give the collector something fun to have that's different. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I, we're performance. certainly looking at t- putting out uh, Syria Mosque on vinyl at some point for record store. I don't know when that'll happen, but we're looking at it. It certainly fits. Yeah, I, I think that would be, you know, and I think, so, you know, when you think about it, you know, this was done not that long, you know, bef- not that far in advance of when at the Fillmore East was recorded. I think that, you know, maybe adds some intrigue to maybe some listeners, you know, because that album is so coveted, um, you know, even, you know, in well, that, that's, that is one of the things that we look at as we're watching the progression in terms of these live tapes that we're, that we, have put out is we, we see the progression of time. Mm-hmm. Um, our American University show is December 70. You know, we're talking five weeks before this, and you can see the evolution of the songs as you head to March 71 when the band recorded live at Fillmore East. Yeah. Um, and yeah, if you're a fan, it's, it's really interesting to see how things are evolving and how they're changing. Particularly, like on this January, Syria Mosque, listen to the You Don't Love Me. Uh, by March, when Fillmore East was recorded, it had grown exponentially. It, it's just so much fun and enjoyable to listen to the band evolve. Uh, and you, and on this release, uh, "You Don't Love Me" is a prime example of that. And where it was by the end of the year, in October at Syria Mosque, two different animals altogether. Uh, so this band was always growing, always changing because they played all the time. You yeah, know, and they they hope their craft. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to note as a fan of, you know, bands today. You know, if you look at their set list for a tour, you might see two, maybe three songs change over the evolution of, you know, 150 dates. This was two months. You know, as my math is correct, from Matt Fillmore East, and the set list is vastly different. You know, and there's you know some staples of an Allman Brothers show, but there's, you know, quite a few songs that were different between the two, which I think adds to but the even intrigue. Even more important is that the, the performances are not um, identical by any yeah. stretch of the imagination. Uh, tempo shift, um, arrangements shift, uh, the, as John said, the order in which people are playing solo shifted. Yeah. For, for, what, for whatever reasons. Yeah, well, I guess... There's an old saying about... Oh, go ahead, John. They may have played... They may have played the same songs, but they never played the same song the same way twice. You know, in memory of Elizabeth Reed, you were never going to get the same version of that. Uh, Whipping Post, you weren't going to get the same version of that. The vocals might have been the same, sure, but everything that occurred in between, 
on any given night they were going to go to a different place. And yeah. that's what made them, you know, the, the, the absolute champs of improvisational music. Yeah. Well, one of the funny things that I, one of the funny things that I discovered, um, because I have to go back and listen to a number of these live recordings and frequently need to um, put lyrics up, and I started looking at the lyrics of um, Hoochie Coochie Man, which is the one song that Barry Oakley sings, and I realized <laughs> that Barry never sings the song the same way <laughs> twice. And I talked to Warren Haynes about this. I said, "Have you ever noticed this?" And he laughed. He says, "Yeah, I notice it all the time." And I said. Yeah. I said, what I get out of it is he's singing all the words that are on the song, but he doesn't sing them all in the same order. He moves lines around in, in, in different verses and stuff. And uh, Warren said to me, you know, there's another Hoochie Coochie version out there that I heard Willie do did with totally different lyrics. And I said, wow, he said, yeah, I'll find it and I'll send it to you, and I haven't seen it yet, but we, he and I were talking about that. And, um, he said, in those blues songs, there's a lot of that. There are there is not necessarily a definitive set of lyrics for these some of these songs. Yeah, and that's it's, it's interesting when you think about that because we've heard certain recordings of it. You know, to your point, we've heard that film where he's, you know, so 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 many times as fans that you just assume, you know, that's the song, the way it's supposed to be. But you're right. You know, you go back and listen to this. You know, if we had a if we had a uh, you know April of '71 recording, you know, I'm sure they're vastly different as well. And that I think that adds to so much to the excitement and, and I think why fans were were so into the band was it wasn't just cookie cutter stuff you know you go to a show now and, and so much of it's synchronized to to video screens and displays that there isn't room to do that you know sans you know obviously you know. warren warren's shows take you in many different directions uh absolutely but i think that's right. one of the beauties of the almond brothers yeah they were going to take you on a musical journey every night and you did you don't know you didn't know where it was going to go but you knew it was going to get there, and that's what made them so special. They'd go yeah, out. I there mean, they're they're make, even that way with set lists. Even the times they'll make up a set list doesn't mean they're going to follow it. <laughs> True. I mean, I've, I've seen True. them add and drop songs on the fly. You know, sometimes it's like, well, we need something more up tempo here. They don't even say it. Someone will go, hey, uh, let's do this. And everyone goes, okay. Sometimes they don't even say it. Sometimes they just start counting off a different song, and everyone goes. Oh, I don't think we're playing what's on the <laughs> list. What are we playing? And they have to sort of like, you know, based on the tempo or based on whoever, whatever the opening notes are, go, oh, we're playing that? And, and these guys are such good players, they just jump in and go. Yeah. It, I, it's, a, it's a very exciting and exhilarating thing. I mean, every once in a while, as, as people who work around the band, um, I've had with production people who are not as, as versed in the material, they'll look at me and go, what song are they playing? Because <laughs> not what's on the list. Yeah, yeah, and I have to think, sit there and think about the melody for a second and try and come up with a title. I mean, I see Greg do that all the time. He'd go, "Let's play," and he couldn't think of the name of the song, but he'd start like, you know, sort of singing the me the melody because he can't think what it's called. Half time, it's a song he wrote, but you know, he's in his mind with his music, so he's not thinking about what the lyrics are or what it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He just that's goes, that's "We need to be playing this right here." That's that's so awesome you know to that, be able to react to to you know you know, to the live audience too. I'm sure some of that you know any more than like a Springsteen show now where he's very in touch with what the audience kind of wants at the time or what the audience needs to raise the energy, take the energy, you know, the ebb and flow of a live show. Um, Absolutely, awesome. and, and what is indicative also is how well these guys listen to one another. They yeah. were totally in tune to what everybody was doing on the stage. They were six, later seven guys playing as one. 
You know, they, they were great listeners, great players, absolutely, but even better listeners. Uh, and that's where they were able to go the places they, they would go with their music. Yeah, that's was, was the process of taking, I'm, I'm assuming this, this was originally on magnetic tape. Was this a, a difficult yeah. process to get it digitized in a, in a you know, format? John, I'll go to first just talk about Final Note, where we went through this when it was on a cassette. When we got the Final Note yeah. cassette, and Bill Levinson said to me, well, uh, how, what's the quality of the cassette? And I said, Bill, this is, you know, 1970. I'll guarantee you it's not a Max L2. <laughs> it turned out to be a, a, a Radio Shack realistic tape with no tension pads. Ouch. And uh, we were really concerned that if we put it, you know, if we played it, we had a digital copy that this guy had made, but we wanted to do our own digital transfer. Um, and we were really concerned that this tape wasn't going to hold up. So we literally took the box apart, took the tape out, put it into a better quality Maxell type box with uh, tension pads and better rollers and that kind of stuff, hand rolled the thing a couple of times to sort of try and get it. Uh, moving correctly, and then mm. you sort of just play it through without even doing a transfer, just to get the tension right, and then you start doing digital transfers. And we did it on a couple of different cassette decks, trying to get yeah. the best transfer. That sounds uh, scary. You know, as a person who still listens to cassettes, you know, some of them from my youth, I get nervous when I pull out a tape from 1983 that it's going to hold up. Yeah, no. Let alone 1971. Yeah, and this is where Levinson comes in. This is where he's into that minutia of, well, let's try it on the Ankyo deck, see how that one sounds. You know, he's really pretty funny with it. Um, and so we spend you know, a good amount of time trying to get different transfers. And then we sort of like do, literally they do, you know, uh, uh, computer analyzation mm-hmm. on the transfers. Do we have any dropouts? Is everything here? Is there, you know, is, it, is there too much distortion? Do we need to change the level when we make the transfer? Mm-hmm. Just trying to get the best quality transfer we can get, and then you can start dealing with it digitally once you once you have that transferred to digital. You know, Bill Bill has won two Grammys, so he has the best years in the business. And while Bert and myself and Kirk West and Richard Brent might know performances, that's why we're such a good team. You bring in the man who's got the uh, the great ears for sonic quality. And that's how we end up with the best possible presentation we can have. Yeah, we we had a couple conversations with Bill where he goes like, "Really, you guys want to think about putting this out?" I said, I'm not so sure about it, Sonic. We go, Bill. The performance is so important. Yeah, and it happened with us in the final note. He said, "I'm not sure we you know, sonically this is here." I said, "Yeah, we know that." But yeah, the, the historic importance of the performance was too important for us. Yeah, to not you put know, it John- out there. It, it's great when you can have the, the 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 true advocates of performance versus a guy who's got tremendous standards for sonic quality and find a happy medium, and the winners ultimately become the fans yeah. that listen to this stuff. Yeah, and I think I, I think uh, speaking as a fan, you know, if I'm going to plunk down money on you know the final recording or even you know the show in Pittsburgh. I don't necessarily expect, you know, 2021 recording digital quality out of that, but it's more about what you're listening to than necessarily how perfect it is, you know. Yeah, and we have that some, some we have some of that problems with some of our audience who have these unrealistic expectations 
Yeah, you know, it's one yeah. thing to take a recording from 1992 and do a digital restoration sure. and put it in 5.1 sound, you know, surround sound, Atmos yeah. mix. You know, um, people go, well, you go back to the stems. I go, stems, this is a cassette. Yeah. You know, this is a real, <laughs> this is a, you know, a 15 inch, not even 15 inch, seven and a half inch, it's, you know, reel to reel um, done on a Revox. At one point, w- what we did was we figured out talking to the original road crew that they use a Revox 77 at some point they had bought to do a lot of their recording. Early on, we went on eBay and bought one that had been that had been sort of uh, a tape deck had been restored. So we had the best chance of making the best transfer using a tape deck that was similar to the one that it was recorded on. Yeah, yeah. Well, guys, I so want to. We do our. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead, John. I was just going to say I I have another call coming up, so I'm going to need to cut her short. I apologize. But um, I wanted to mention the album will be released. Uh, is it October 28th is the release date? That, that's what it's scheduled for, yep. Okay. And folks will be able to get that. I'm assuming the initial would be CD, or is it just going to go to streaming until it, a future CD date? CD and digital. Okay. And then, CD and digital. And then I think folks will cross their fingers on the record store. Keep uh, keep an eye out for the record store day releases going forward. Yeah, look, look. Look in 2023. Maybe we'll make that one. I'm not sure. We'll see. See if they take us. Well, Bert, John, I want to thank you both so much for your time and and more so for your efforts in, you know, as a fan, bringing these things to light. I think, you know, this is a a wonderful recording. Far exceeded what I expected from 1971. It would have sounded good for 1991, but um, a really good product. And I, I, I thank you guys for putting this in the hands of the fans. One, one last pitch I want. If anybody out there has any tickets, posters, photographs in this show, please get in touch with us. AlbanBrothersBand.com. Leave us a message. We'll get to All you. All right, John Linsky and Bert Holman, thank them both so much for their time. Again, that Allman Brothers recording of the Syria Mosque show from January 1971 will be available here by month's end on CD. Uh, we'll be looking forward to that as a future record store day release on vinyl i'm sure that'll be a must-have a uh, great to have that show I, I know i'm probably one of uh, many people in the western pennsylvania area that have that allman brothers tour poster on a t-shirt uh saw that at i don't even remember but it was one of the big retailers had and i'm like whoa syria moss gotta have that you know I love the allman brothers it was great to have that and really neat recording even though it was done as i mentioned in the interview very close to the uh, the fillmore album Still very different set list and very different performances. That's one of the things that makes it cool about listening to the Allman Brothers recordings is they vary so much night to night, week to week, month to month, that it's not like listening to the same old songs live. There are bands out there that you could, I could hand you a recording done six months after you saw them live and you swear it was the night you saw them because it's the exact same set list in the exact same order. Not so with the Allman Brothers ever, but uh, very evident in the 1971 recording. So you check that out. I invite you to check out our website, ironcityrocks.com. We are on all the social medias at forward slash ironcityrocks. You can email us at ironcityrocks at gmail.com. Suggestions for future shows. Also invite you to check out, uh, we've got a lot of concert photos up uh, recently from shows that have been in the area. So I invite you to check out those. And uh, let us know what you're interested in hearing about on the show. We'd love to hear from you. So until next time, thank you. (laughs) 